Thank you, Pastor Paul, for the prayer. Scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 10 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put light a lamp and put it under a basket, but it is on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Hi again. Uh, today, we have the privilege of hearing from uh, Pastor Nathan Boyette. I met this brother a little over a year ago, I believe, and we became uh, friends. He's a, he's a fellow PCA pastor, uh, a family man. His whole family's here uh, with us today. Uh, Han Soon, right? Han Soon and three kids. Uh, oldest one is Noah, and then middle is Daniel, and there's a younger one, Noel, sweet Noel, who I met, who was hiding behind her mommy the whole time, but uh, she, <laughs> she's with us as well. Uh, let's give them a warm welcome. And uh, Pastor Nathan is, is planning to church plant uh, somewhere in the Chantilly Centerville area. He has a big heart for the region here. Uh, and um, he, he was part of a church in Arlington called Emmanuel. And so they're, they're going to be the commissioning church, Lord willing. And so he's just still in the preparation process. But uh, we connected, we became friends, and I, I wanted to do my part to help connect him with the local churches in the area, because that's what church planters love to do. They love to connect with people and churches. And, and so uh, let's, uh, once again, warmly welcome him as he comes up, and uh, be eager to hear from God's word today. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Cornerstone, for welcoming us. It's a pleasure to be here and to open God's word. Uh, when uh, I've gotten to know Paul of, over a few meetings over the past year, got to know Pastor Jacob, and it's been a pleasure to meet them and hear about your church and, and their heart for you all. And he invited me to come and preach, and uh, as I was preparing the passage, uh, God brought to my heart the Sermon on the Mount, one of my favorite uh, sections of scripture, and specifically uh, this part about being the salt and light of the world. Um, just to orient us to the passage a little bit, our passage today comes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say it's part of the introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount, and it's directly linked to the Beatitudes. Uh, many people think of the Beatitudes as merely verses 1 to 9, but actually it continues on into verses 16. Uh, the first three Beatitudes describe our spiritual need, talks how we're poor in spirit, the middle beatitude describes how God meets that need. It says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied by God alone. 
The last three of the traditional Beatitudes describe the resulting transformation and actions, how we're gonna be peacemakers, how we're gonna be merciful. But these all combine to describe the character of a disciple and how they are distinct from the world. And this carries on into verses 10 through 16, which then describe the reaction of the world and how uh, it reacts to disciples who radically follow Jesus Christ, who faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna focus on that last section, how we are to live in the world and how the world reacts to us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then we'll dive right in. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we have the freedom to gather together as your people openly, without fear, to worship you, especially as we read this passage which speaks about persecution in our hearts, go to our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for merely claiming to know you, sometimes in danger of their lives. We pray that you would strengthen them, encourage, comfort them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be here present now, speaking to us through your word. Open our hearts and minds Speak to us through this sermon. We pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, challenge us to live differently, comfort us when we need comfort. Please speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the movie Pay It Forward, middle school student Trevor is given an assignment by his social studies teacher to come up with an idea that would change the world. As Pastor Paul mentioned, my oldest child is in middle school, and I've been helping him out a little bit with his schoolwork. I can't imagine a teacher giving him an assignment, Noah, transform the world, come up with an idea to transform the world. That is a monumental undertaking. But the social studies teacher in this movie challenged his class, come up with an idea that will change the world. And Trevor comes up with the idea of paying it forward. The idea is to do for every individual to do three kind acts to three individuals with no expectation of repayment, but rather that individual should pay it forward to three other individuals, do kind acts to them. And this is gonna create a ripple domino effect where kindness and goodness goes out in the world, transforming the world as people are kind with no expectation of payment, repayment. And so Trevor begins this project by doing kind acts to those around him a homeless drug addict that he meets on the street, his teacher, his mom, fellow students, other people he meets in the community. And as time goes by, Trevor gets frustrated because he's not seeing any results. In fact, it seems like some of the people's lives are getting worse, not better. So he gets frustrated. He's not seeing that domino effect of kindness and goodness that he envisioned. In the movie, it's not until after Trevor's unfortunate death that we see the massive wave of kindness he has unleashed. At his funeral, people from around the country come, people who had been impacted by somebody who had been impacted by somebody who had been impacted by Trevor. The kindness has been unleashed on the world. In a similar manner, Jesus' disciples are called to have a domino effect of grace, kindness in the world. Throughout the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus' disciples are called to interact with the world. We interact with those who do not know the Lord and are far from Jesus. We're called to be part of advancing God's kingdom. We are called to be a witness, to have a ripple domino effect in the world. But how does the world respond to Christians? How does the world respond to this message that Jesus originally proclaimed? The world responds to us the same way it responded to Jesus, in one of two ways either acceptance and faith and repentance or animosity, rejection, persecution. 
See, rebellious, sinful humanity opposes God, even his gospel plan of salvation. Each one of us, before we knew Jesus, we were opposed to God, rejected God. The world opposes Jesus, and it will also oppose his followers if we live like him. And that's why in verse 12, Jesus says that we are to rejoice in our persecution. Jesus says we are blessed when we experience persecution because persecution shows that we are actually, truly his followers. It shows where our true citizenship is. Persecution shows where our true reward is. It's not in this world and the temporary, momentary pleasures and rewards that the world can offer. Rather, our reward is in the kingdom of heaven, God's gracious gift of eternal life, his gracious gift of salvation. That's what the Beatitudes established. The first three talked about how we were in desperate need. We were spiritually broken. The middle Beatitude talks about how that should result in us hungering for righteousness and being satisfied in God alone. So the implicit command in our verses is to reorient our values, our perspective, to reorient how we live. Sadly, we are too concerned with earthly pleasure and gain, and so we avoid circumstances that will cause us to be persecuted. We don't rejoice in persecution, we avoid it. I know I do at times, but we can rejoice and be blessed in persecution because our life is not about this momentary fleeting life but it's about the eternity that we will enjoy in relationship with God. We already have the amazing reward of God's forgiveness, salvation, relationship. If we've repented and trusted in Jesus as our Savior, that relationship is ours. The result is that we should live differently. So the idea we're gonna unpack today in our passage is that in light of God's gracious gift of salvation and relationship with him, we should live lives that imitate Jesus despite the persecution that might come. In light of God's gift of eternal salvation and relationship with him, we should live lives that imitate Jesus. And in our passage, we see three ways we are to imitate Jesus. Showing righteousness, being salt, and being light. Righteousness, salt, and light. First, righteousness. We are called to imitate Jesus' righteous example in the world. In verses 10 through 12, we see this. Jesus says in our passage that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will be blessed. Righteousness can be understood in two ways. First, it could be understood as living according to God's standards, being holy, righteous, without blame, without sin, living in a manner that pleases him, living in a manner that he created us to live in. Or righteousness could be understood as an external gift given to us freely, not because we deserve it, but because God graciously gives us Jesus's righteousness, Jesus' right good record of being without sin. Verse five explains that a disciple who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. The righteousness Jesus is pointing to throughout the Sermon on the Mount is not the righteousness of our own good works. It's the righteousness that God freely extends to us because he desires to forgive his lost creatures a righteousness that is given by faith in Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus further explains that his disciples are being persecuted on his account for Jesus' sake because they imitate him. His followers are persecuted because they point the world to the reality that no one is enough on their own. We can't accomplish what we need to. 
we desperately need Jesus to provide that external righteousness. That's why the world rejects and persecutes Christians. We suffer persecution because Jesus is our king and we're pointing to him. We don't suffer persecution because of our own sin. We don't suffer persecution because we're a jerk or not kind or grumpy or foolish. That's just the result of our own actions. We suffer persecution as Christians because we want to point to Jesus. And this is the reality of Christians and God's people, even before Jesus came. That's why Jesus says that even the prophets in the Old Testament suffered persecution for representing God. And we look at church history, and it's the same. Even now, in many places, people suffer persecution for Jesus' sake. Because the reality is, if righteousness does not attract you, it will repulse you. You will reject it. You will not be attracted by it if you don't want to know God. So our witness should cause people to make a choice about this Jesus and his righteousness that we witness to. Do they accept or reject him? So as disciples of Jesus, who have the gracious gift of forgiveness and relationship with God, we should imitate Jesus by being a witness to the righteousness that he freely gives to those who trust in him. A righteousness that is by faith and grace, not something that we earn. John and Charles Wesley, speaking of a revival, as Pastor Paul did earlier, they were instrumental in some important revivals in church history. They were pastors in the Church of England in the early 18th century, and they saw a huge revival take place in their life, and they were part of that. However, before that revival, even while they were ordained pastors of the Church of England, neither one of them were actually Christians. They were young men studying Oxford, and they worked so hard to be Christians. They worked so hard to be approved of by God that they earned the nickname, the Holy Club. This wasn't a term of endearment. This was a term of derision by their fellow students. These guys are ridiculous, people thought. And the young Wesleys were not even sure if they were saved. They struggled with grave doubts because they were relying on their own efforts. They were relying on their own righteousness so they traveled to America as missionaries and returned incredibly disappointed because it felt like what they had done, preaching and doing works there, were a failure. Wesley, writing on his experience in Georgia, wrote, I went to America to convert others, but oh, who shall convert me? He was struggling to even know that he was saved by God. But by God's grace, the one who did convert them, they came to know God's gracious salvation and forgiveness, that their righteousness was never gonna be enough. They needed God's gift of righteousness. They believed in that and their lives were transformed and they did ministry out of joy and a desire for others to know. After they came to the saving knowledge, John and Charles traveled all over England, all over America. In his life, John Wesley traveled over 250,000 miles, mostly by foot or on horseback, and he preached over 40,000 sermons. That's multiple times a week, most outside in all types of weathers to illiterate coal miners and farmhands. Charles Wesley similarly traveled extensively, and he was well known for, while he traveled on horseback, writing hymns. He wrote over 6,000 hymns in his lifetime, many that we still sing today. These two men were instrumental in the first great awakening, which saw thousands, hundreds of thousands of people come to know God. And that was when they realized that their own righteousness was never gonna be enough. 
They needed God's righteousness to invade their lives. We, just like John and Charles Wesley, are called as Christians to imitate Jesus by witnessing to God's free gift of righteousness given to us by grace. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when he writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, not for ourselves, not for our greatness, not for any institution's greatness, but for Christ and the salvation he provides. Christian author, author Rebecca Pippert in a great book on personal evangelism called Stay Salt writes, our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information, it is that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget we are called to be witnesses to what we have seen and known, not what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. Now, we could take that too far and think, oh, well, we don't need to study theology. We don't need to read deep, important Christian books. And that's not what she's saying. She's saying is too often we make the excuse of, well, I don't have a seminary degree. I'm not a professional Christian pastor. I'll leave that up to them. I don't know enough. What if people ask me questions that I can't answer about my Christian faith? But what God calls us to do is to witness to what we have personally experienced, that we have realized that our efforts are not enough on our own, but God's righteousness has been freely given to us, and we are now forgiven, beloved children of God simply by faith. If you're a Christian, you have a story of how at one point you didn't know that, and now you know that, and your life is different, your hope is different. And we can share that story with our friends, our family, our neighbors. We can be that witness to Jesus's righteousness. And Jesus goes on in our passage and unpacks what being his witness is with two metaphors of being salt and being light. Explaining this, John Stock comments, salt and light are both effective commodities. They change the environment into which they are introduced. It may be argued that salt and light have complementary effects. The influence of salt is negative. It hinders bacterial decay. The influence of light is positive. It illuminates the darkness. Just so the influence of Christians on society is intended by Jesus to be both negative, checking the spread of evil, and positive, promoting the spread of truth and goodness, and especially the gospel. So let's unpack those two metaphors, being salt and being light. First, being salt. In verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What was salt? Why did Jesus use this metaphor? Salt was used very differently in Jesus's day than in our day. Now we mostly use salt as a table ingredient that we add to meals to make them taste a little better. But in Jesus's day, salt was essential for life. First, before refrigeration and chemical preservatives, salt was essential to prevent the decay of meat and vegetables. Adding salt to these allowed the lifespan of the meat and vegetables to be extended so that people could preserve them and stay alive longer. Jesus is saying that the presence of morally strong, righteous disciples who trust in God's grace can slow and prevent the moral decay of society. And we see this in church history as before Christianity became widely spread in the Roman Empire, it was a common practice for Romans and their citizens to abandon babies in the town square to die. But as Christians took those babies and adopted them, society was transformed and people no longer did that practice. 
This is just one of many examples we could point to where Christians transform society by stopping evil. But salt also gives flavor to food. It makes things taste better. And so Christians are to increase the flavor of life. We're to make life better. We are to be the most joy-filled, life-giving individuals that people encounter and know. We're to increase the flavor of life. A final use of salt in Jesus' day was during sacrifices. You see, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God's people, when they made sacrifices, were instructed to also make an offering of salt, to include salt in their sacrifice. This salt represented faithfulness and indicated that God's people intended to stay faithful to the special, unique relationship that God had given them. It was called the salt of the covenant. It communicated that their hearts were set on following God and knowing and serving him. And so as the salt of the earth, Christians are to prevent moral decay. There's to check the spread of evil in society. We're to give flavor to life by making it better for people around us and be a faithful presence for God in society. However, there is also a warning contained here in Jesus' teaching. In verse 13, he goes on and says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Again, we need to understand the context to which Jesus is speaking. In our modern times, salt that we use is stable and it doesn't lose its saltiness. But in ancient times, salt was dug out of the ground as a rock. And this rock had other minerals and impurities mixed in. And water could wash through where the salt was deposited and cause all the salt to disappear, but leave the rock and other minerals there. And the result was it still looked like salt, but it wasn't salty. It was useless. All of the essential important properties of that salt had been washed away. Jesus is saying and telling his disciples to stay salty, to stay as his people, to not be washed of the essential properties of a Christian by the world. We are to remain distinct in the world, but not of it. Dan Doriani commenting on this passage says, the church is alien so that it suffers persecution, but it is influential so that it stops decay. The more we sense and accept our difference from the world, the greater our influence will be. The more we allow secular society to affect us morally and spiritually, the more we lose our saltiness. We as Christians need to stay distinct from the world, not be indistinguishable from it. We need to be different. So how is the church to be distinct or salty? How are we to prevent evil and moral decay in society and increase the flavor of life? We merely need to look at the context in which Jesus is speaking. The Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful example of how we as Christians can be distinct and different from society, but especially the Beatitudes. If we embrace the Beatitudes, then we will be distinct and different from the world. We will increase the flavor of life and draw people to God as they see us live radically different. Just listen at what the Beatitudes call followers of Jesus to value that is different from the world. First, the Beatitudes call us to acknowledge and embrace our poverty of spirit, where the world hides and excuses sin. Second, the Beatitudes call us to mourn over ours and others' sin, where the world often embraces and celebrates sin. The Beatitudes call us to be humble, where the world too often values arrogance and pride. 
The Beatitudes call us to hunger for a righteousness outside of ourselves and point other peoples to that righteousness and let them know that only in that outer righteousness will they be satisfied. The Beatitudes call us to be merciful where the world is too often quick to judge, quick to condemn, and quick to cancel people. The, world, uh, the Beatitudes call us to seek purity, holiness, where the world too often avoids God's ways because it's inconvenient or difficult. The Beatitudes call us to be peacemakers and forgivers, where the world values peace only if you get in line with the world's values. So you see, if we value what the Sermon on the Mount values, if we value the Beatitudes, then we will be salt. So as disciples of Jesus who have the gracious gift of relationship with him, we should imitate Jesus by being salt of the earth. And a perfect example of this is a Korean pastor named Kim Jun-gon, who was the founder of Korean Campus Crusade for Christ. Kim lived through the Korean War. He was a young man newly married when the Korean War began on an island in Korea. And North Korean communists invaded the South and nearly conquered the whole country. And they came to the island where he lived, and many of the, the people uh, decided to join the, the communists because they seemed like they were going to win at that point. And these people attacked those who didn't join them. And they killed thousands on this island, including Kim's father and his wife. And as we know from history, American soldiers in the South Korean army pushed the North Korean communists back, reconquered that island, captured many of the communists, and because it was the middle of the war, the police chief, the local police chief, had the authority to execute individuals without trial. And many of those communists were captured and about to be executed. But Kim pleaded on behalf of them. He said, please spare them. They were forced to kill out of fear of what the communists would do to them. And the police chief was incredibly shocked. He said, but it was your family that was killed. Why would you spare their lives? Kim replied, because the Lord, who I belong to and whom I serve, would have me show mercy to them. The communists were spared execution because of Kim's plea. And news of this action spread across the island to communist supporters who were in hiding. And he later went throughout the island preaching about Jesus and his forgiveness. He climbed to the top of a mountain where many of the communists were hiding out. People said, you're going to die if you go there. He went anyways. He wasn't killed. But because he had shown himself to be a man of mercy, they sat and listened to him. And many of them repented and became Christians. And when he eventually left that island many years later, he left behind a flourishing church of over 108 members, many of them former communists. See, in this situation, Kim was the salt of the earth. He brought goodness, mercy, and grace into a horrible situation where the world said, you should pay these people back, punish them. He spared them with mercy and kindness. Now, many of us are not going to ever be in that horrible situation where we have our home invaded and our family members killed, but God has called the church and he has called each one of us to be the salt of the earth wherever we live and work. He's called us to acts of goodness, kindness, mercy, social righteousness. We don't need political power to be God's salt. We simply need God's power in our everyday life. We are called to be salt by supporting good and merciful works. We can think of any number of examples, supporting adoption, helping other people do adoption, merciful, generous giving to the poor and needy. For example, like Compassion International, where you support a child and you support a local church in their country that provides food for them, disciples them, teaches them. 
We could think of the ministry you all do with the homeless. That is being the salt of the earth. There's so many other examples that we could think of. A great tragedy is that too often, we Christians look just like the world. We've lost our saltiness. We don't prevent the decay of society. We don't stop the spread of evil. We don't bring goodness and grace and kindness into the world, but we look exactly like the surrounding culture. In modern America, we are so shaped and influenced by media, the news, TV, internet, social media, music. All of these things are forming us and shaping us as we listen to them constantly. As the values of the world are embedded in all of these things, it's shaping us to be like the world. It's washing us of the saltiness that we need to be. But God calls us to something different. Paul talks about this in Romans 12, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to be conformed by God's word, transformed it, not conformed to this world. Pastor Paul and I were speaking earlier about how you all are embarking on more efforts to memorize scripture. Memorizing scripture helps transform us. It counteracts the effects of being influenced by media. We often think that to change the world, we must do big, dramatic things. But what is really needed is steady, faithful presence for God. To faithfully live in the community where God has placed us, in the family and workplace that God has given you, living out the attitudes presented in the Sermon on the Mount. The final way we are to imitate Jesus' witness is by being the light of the world. The metaphor is familiar to many of us if you've read the Bible. It's present throughout. Jesus in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus that he would be a light for the nations, which brings God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is implying here, and the Bible implies here, that the world is in darkness. Due to sin, the world is in darkness and ignorance about who God is, who we truly are, and how we are to have a relationship with him. The world does not know God and doesn't know the right way to live. We merely need to look around us at our society, at people we know, and how dark the world really is. But Jesus tells his disciples that they are to be the light of the world. Light brings clear sight and revelation. Where darkness hides and conceals things, light reveals what is true. And just as there was a warning about salt losing its saltiness, there's also a warning about light here. Jesus goes on in verses 14 and 15. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and he gives light to all in the house. As disciples, we should not hide our light from the world. We are to live on display for the world to see. But too often we hide our lights, don't we? We don't shine for people to see and have the truth revealed. We hide our lights. Jesus explains in verse 16 when he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and know and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are supposed to live lives of practical kindness and neighborly love so that people give us the opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with them. As God's children who have been saved from darkness, we are now children of light and should walk and live in that manner. 
And so as disciples of Jesus who have been given the gracious gift of relationship with him, we should imitate Jesus by being a light in the world, showing the world where it is in darkness and does not know the truth, speaking about who God is and what he has done. When you think about light and how it's produced, it's not as easy for us to understand this in our modern period because light is so easy to produce. We just flip a light switch. Electricity is abundant. But at Jesus' point in time, when it was night, when it was dark, all they had was a small candle or an oil lamp. Things were much darker at night than we can even comprehend. And to provide light required the sacrifice of something. A candle had to be burned. Oil had to be burned. A fire had to be burned. Wood had to be burned to provide light. To provide light required sacrifice of some form. In the same way, Jesus, to provide light to the world, had to sacrifice. He left his home in heaven, came into this world, died on the cross, so that he might give light to those of us who are in darkness. We also, as his followers, are called to sacrifice our wants, our needs, in order to give light to others. That's what Jesus talks about again and again in the Gospels. In Matthew 20, he says to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It should not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, why do sometimes we hide our light as Christians? There's any number of reasons, but some of the common ones are that we are afraid. We're afraid of how people might respond. We're afraid that people will reject us, persecute us. Sometimes we hide our light because we compromise. It's just easier to go along and get along, to avoid the discomfort and the difficulty of representing Jesus and speaking the truth to people who don't want to hear it. Sometimes we hide our light as Christians because we're lazy. We don't want the difficulty of sharing the gospel with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. We don't want the difficulty of what it means to be a Christian shining their light. But now there is a drastic need in America for Christians to shine their light, to be salt in the world, because America has radically changed in the past 20 to 30 years when it comes to Christianity. In the U.S. alone, thousands of churches close every year that they have statistics on. A recent Atlantic article written about a year ago noted that 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. These are people who grew up going to church and have just stopped going. In 2020, less than 47% of U.S. adults reported on a survey that they belong to a church. Now, that's in contrast to 70% of U.S. adults in 1999, a huge drop in only 20 years. In 2018, those who answered none to a survey question about religious affiliation accounted for nearly 30% of the U.S. population. By 2030, the percentage of the U.S. population who say none when it comes to religious affiliation will outnumber evangelical Christians or Catholics. Combined, evangelical Christians and Catholics will just barely be more than them. America is fast on its way to only five out of 10 respondents saying they have any sort of identity as a Christian. This is a huge shift in America when it comes to Christianity. Many of you probably have friends family members, coworkers who have left Christianity, who no longer believe it to be true, who want nothing to do with it, who would say they have none or no, nothing when it comes to religious affiliation. 
So it can often seem like God's kingdom isn't advancing here in America, but it's losing ground. It's shrinking. It's becoming more difficult. And this could be incredibly discouraging. But instead of being discouraged, we should take faith in God who has said that he will advance his kingdom. And we should be reminded that this is an opportunity, an opportunity to live out what we are called to be Christians, being the salt and light of the world. An opportunity to share the gospel with people who are far from God and don't know anything about him. That's why my wife and my family and I moved here to Northern Virginia a year and a half ago to plant a church because they're so desperately in need of churches here in America. People that we've interacted with since we've moved here, people that we have talked with have no idea what Christianity is about. Some of them who grew up in Centerville and Chantilly their entire lives don't have one Christian friend. We desperately need more churches that can share the gospel with their neighbors, their friends, their coworkers. So we are called to be a witness, to be a light in the world, and let us accept that responsibility. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, placed your hope in his death and resurrection, then you're already a beloved child of God, graciously, freely given that simply because you've believed. You don't need to earn it by being salt and light, but with that should come a response, a desire for other people to also experience what you've experienced. Let's think about it as we think about how Jesus expressed God's heart in Luke 15. If you're familiar with that, it's where Jesus talks about the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. When asked why he was spending so much time with the sinners and the tax collectors, Jesus didn't directly answer. It's because God loves them. No, he said three parables to talk about lostness and rejoicing when people who are lost are found. And he talked about how God has his heart for the lost and God has this beautiful, loving, compassionate, merciful heart for those who are lost and far from him. Each one of us were once lost like that, lost in darkness, far from God, headed on a path to hell and judgment and death. But God came into our lives, gave us that external righteousness and forgiveness and saved us. Let us, because God has done that for us, have the same heart he has and be salt and light to those around us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are incredibly gracious and merciful. When we think about the history of humanity and how each one of us and collectively we have sinfully rejected you, opposed you, turned our backs on you, we should be amazed, Lord God, by your mercy and grace. The fact that you did not immediately destroy us or judge us, were long-suffering, patient, compassionate, merciful, that you sent our Lord Jesus to this earth to sacrifice himself on our behalf, to die in our place so that we might be saved. We thank you that it's not something we have to earn, but something that's freely given to us by faith and trust in you. We pray, Lord God, that because we have experienced that salvation, because we have that relationship freely given to us, we pray that you would stir our hearts with compassion, grace for those around us, those who are far from you and still lost in darkness. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to actively think as we leave here, how can we be salt and light in our lives with our friends, our coworkers, our classmates? Lord God, help us to think, and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, you would be present with us as we go and be your witnesses. We pray this all in Jesus' name.